and before we do uh, get to the sermon, uh, I'd like to share a story with you. Two, uh, um, two weeks ago, and, and we're going to change our tone here. I've kind of been, you know, like peppy announcement tone. I want to talk about something very serious. So let's all take a breath and shift our tone, okay? Two weeks ago, my friend, and who's a part of this church, uh, JB, texted me this photo. It's uh, scribbled out, uh, the yellow part scribbled out on purpose. Um, JB happens to be a, a person of color. Uh, he lives down the street from us, um, over on Glen Avenue. And just south uh, of Fifth Street on Glen Avenue, in the corner of Glen Avenue and Fifth, literally just a uh, walk away, uh, two houses down, within view of his window, someone painted this graffiti. Someone spray painted the N-word, that's what's covered up, and two swastikas. Well, he texted me this photo, and I was like, immediately, I was like, well, we're going to take care of it. And they were in conversation with the city about getting it covered up, but I wasn't going to wait for the city because, well, you know. So the following morning, I showed up with some paint, and we covered it up. Um, he took pictures of me doing it, and I was in my, my, my mowing clothes, so I don't know if I appreciate that. But... And my dad's shoes. They were white covered in green, you know? So not the point of the story, though. Let's not get distracted. Um, if you're not familiar, our, our church has a very strong stance against anti-racism. You can read more about it by going to cityviewcolumbus.org slash anti-racism dash statement. There's even a list of sermons there that we've given over the years in the life of our church uh, about anti-racism. And, and I want to share this story. This, this happened in our neighborhood, the fifth by north na- neighborhood that our church resides in. So I want to share it for two reasons. First, it's really important for a majority white church to realize that overt racism still exists. Okay? There is a tendency in our society for people who don't experience racism to assume it's gone away. Okay? We tend to think that if, if, if I don't personally witness it, then it must not be there. Friends, you don't personally witness it, if, that, if that's you, you don't personally witness it for an obvious reason. Okay, so Let's just come to terms with that. I am here to tell you that overt racism still exists, and we can't turn a blind eye to it. We, we have a lot of work to do, and, and the graffiti uh, isn't even the end of it. Uh, JB uh, posted uh, about this incident, and we, we're actually, ironic, not even ironically, um, divinely going through a study right now on how to fight racism. Like, that's our Wednesday night book study right now. And so JB was there with his wife and all of us, and we were talking about this, and I told him I was going to share this on, today. So he posted about this incident on Facebook. He posted some of those photos, even with my dad's shoes, and he, he was celebrating the fact that, that a group of us got together to, to address it. Right? He was, he was moved by that. He, was, he felt good about that. Um, even one of the neighbors, funny enough, after they saw me paint it over, he was like, oh, I hadn't had time to paint it yet, but I wanted it covered up. So he brought me a pack of beer. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in church, but uh, as a way of thank you. Um, and uh, I, I offered then, you know, JB a, a thing, and he was like, yeah, reparations. So um, <laughs> it was great. It's a great moment. But, you know, he posted this story on Facebook, and not everyone was in the mood to celebrate. Someone on Facebook decided to use that post to explain why he believed racism like this happened because black people have been too aggressive. 
that it's because of the division caused by movements like Black Lives Matter that has pushed white people to be more racist. That is an actual argument that someone made on JB's social media post about how we painted over the N-word next to swastikas, okay? So, and if I'm understanding the, the, the logic of this argument is when white people are racist it, against black people, it's really black people's fault. Okay, I don't often cuss in church. I won't say I don't. I'm tempted today. Okay. If you want to understand the depth of the problem, consider this story. Overt racism still exists today, and we can't turn a blind eye to it. Here's the second thing I want to say today. And this is very important. I've, I've thought about this a lot. Overt racism isn't even the, the, the biggest problem. Overt racism is still an issue, clearly. But systemic racism is an even bigger issue, if that's even possible. But it is. Most people, not all, sadly, but most people, when they see a swastika next to the N-word, they look at it and they say, that's wrong. And it is but it's also obvious and it's kind of easy to address. It cost me 20 bucks worth of paint from the hardware store and it's covered up. And it was this moment, you know, like that's overt racism. Easy to identify, easy to address, maybe not fix entirely, but to address. You can respond to it, you can take action. You see it, you say it's wrong. Systemic racism is way harder. Systemic racism is harder to, to pinpoint, harder to explain, harder to address. It's by definition complicated and pervasive. Overt racism is like cleaning up a spill of water on a coffee table, right? You can see it, you can address it. You wipe it down, you get the bounty quicker picker upper with that quilted technology and the spill is soaked right up. Systemic racism is like cleaning up a spill of water on a coffee table if the coffee table is floated in the ocean. No bounty's gonna clean that up. See, systemic racism is the way our society has been built from the ground up to treat entire people, entire people groups, as second-class citizens. It's rooted in slavery, manifest destiny, the trail of tears, and it's been perpetuated by the prison system, redlining, generational oppression, access to education and resources. It continues in microaggressions and stereotypes and an unfair distribution of power. And at the very least, it's living with this overwhelming feeling that the world is against you. It's the fact that the majority of people who have wealth, power, decision-making, and access to resources in America are white. That's a fact. You can look it up. Most bosses, most politicians, most police officers, teachers, doctors are white. And this isn't by accident. It was by design. It's part of our history. And it's sitting with that struggle. And, and, and as, a, as a black person, and I'm not a black person, obviously, but when, as a black person sits with that struggle, when it becomes unbearable to carry on your own, and you decide to go see a mental health professional to discuss your experience with racism, and you go find a therapist, you'll find that 86% of therapists are also white. Woo. So now you're sitting with a white person trying to convince them that racism still exists instead of getting the help that you need. Fact. 86%. And all this compounds on top of each other. I'm here to tell you that I, I, I do not have the capacity to understand how hard it is. But that's systemic racism. Entire systems built against people. 
It's a lot harder to explain, and it's a lot harder to address. So sure, we are going to paint over racial slurs. If you see one in the city, I will drive to the location and cover it up. But we also have to be committed to addressing the systems that need changing so everyone can have equal access to the life that God wants them. In both cases, we're committed to anti-racism. We're committed to the work. And here's why I'm taking time to address this today. It's important for you, if you consider this your church home, to know that there is still work that needs to be done in our community and in our world. And I invite you to do that work. And here's what that means. If you haven't already, read a book on anti-racism. There is a great collection of books recently written that you can start with. If you're looking for recommendations, I'll offer that. I would encourage you to add it to your prayers if you have a prayer life and you're praying for things regularly, this should be on your prayer list. Show up to marches when they have them. And then as we continue to have classes and discussions on this topic, show up. And I want to just thank everyone who has. We've engaged every year in a different way this topic, and so many of you showed up um, for sermon series we've done, uh, discussion groups, book studies, et cetera. So this is all part of building a beloved community. It's part of our mission as a church. Um, and so the question is, can we do this together? I hope so. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the message today. God, creator of all living things, unite us as people of faith to stand side by side with our brothers and sisters who are suffering. Uh, You've created us in your image and likeness as equals. One of our greatest sins, God, is when we treat people with disrespect or if we or as if they were created inferior because of the color of their skin or their nationality. So let us reach out to those most hurt by acts of prejudice and racism and discrimination. Let our prayers plead for forgiveness for any wrong we have committed as a community guided by the Holy Spirit. Let us work towards educating society and seeking to be models of your love so that real change can occur. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Last week, we kicked off our all-in series. So not to confuse you, we're going to change the tone again. Still serious, but... uh, And not to diminish what we just talked about, because we're going to talk about it again here in a little bit. It just so happens that we're going to. Last week, we kicked off our all-in series, and I shared a story about Finn. He's he's our uh, six-year-old son, and he, he still hasn't learned to swim. And because of that, he hates uh, water in his face. He likes to swim, you know, but he's just scared of water. He won't put his head under water. He's scared of getting water in his face. He hates it when kids splash water in his face. Um, he, w- he refuses to go all in. And, and so I used that as an illustration. I said, what are you holding back? Are you afraid to go all in with your faith? Well, more than one person told me, um, as if they didn't get the point of the sermon, that I really should give Finn swimming lessons, right? <laughs> Which I love it. That's you know we walk away with, and it, it's fair. Um, and, and for serious reasons, this is a safety issue. I get it. Um, fine. So I'm happy to inform you all that we found a swim school, signed Finn up, and had his first lesson this week. So yeah, thank you. There's a picture of him right there. So uh, when I talk about you know action steps from sermons, this was mine. And uh, here he is. He's waiting for his class. That's a reflection blocking his t- teacher's face. So I didn't, you know. But he, he, I was so nervous, too, when he, when he did this. Um, I mean, I've tried to teach him to swim. Not, a, like, a lot. But, like, a, I, 
I'd put a good faith effort into teaching him to swim, even just trying to get him to be comfortable putting his face in water, because I'm going to tell you, bath and shower, like, bath time's the worst. He doesn't want to do it, because water's going to get in his face. We have to clean his hair. And then Alyssa's like, we'll just, we'll just cut your hair short, and it won't be easier. And he's like, no, I want long hair. And I'm like, I get it, man. I would too, but whatever. <laughs> so I, I watched this happening with like a little bit of like, Shortness in my breath, like his class started and he, he was getting into the water and I was wondering if he was going to lose his mind and melt down. But you know what? His instructor was so nice and so professional, clearly trained. She knew he was nervous because we had told her and she took her time and eased him into it. And I watched as he put his face into water, not just once, multiple times. It was awesome. She got him to do what I couldn't, and because I knew I was going to preach on this this week, it got me thinking, and I think it's worth mentioning. Turns out I'm not good at everything. Can I get an amen? But neither are you. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Say it with me. I'm not good at everything. And that's okay. It is okay. You guys aren't very good at repeating me. And that's okay. I, I, here's the thing. I'm so thankful that there are teachers who can teach my son things that I would never be able to teach him myself. Because it takes a village, doesn't it? I mean, is there, but here's the thing. Is there a better picture of what the church should be? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 about how there are many body, with, that we are a body and that there are many parts, and none of the parts are going to do the same thing, but all of the parts are important. And how true is that? I'm not good at everything because um, I'm not supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be good at everything. I'm supposed to, I was created to rely on other people. In Genesis, when God said it is not good for human to be alone, He wasn't talking about marriage. I think he was talking about community. We need each other. I'm supposed to be a small part of a larger community. I'm I'm a part of a community where together we do what none of us could do on our own. Now, when we realize this, I find life begins to open up for us, which leads me to a very important lesson that's going to sound kind of obvious, and you're not going to, like, this... It's not as profound as you think it is, Joe, and I promise you it is, so just hold on to it, and someday it'll click, but it's very important. I'm going to put it on the screen, and here's what it is. Just because something is important doesn't mean I should do it. I'm saying this from a first-person perspective. You can, it applies to you as well. Just because something is important doesn't mean I should do it, and just because I don't do something doesn't mean it's not important. Okay? This is important. This is important because we tend to measure people's value of things based on whether they engage with it. But here's what I want you to hear. You might disagree with me, but just because something is important doesn't mean I have to do it. And just because I don't do something doesn't mean it's not important. I found this to be due especially for pastors. There is an idea of some people that pastors should do everything in the church, or if not everything, they should do something specific. And everyone has a different answer to that. And if you added up all of the specific things people think a pastor should do, I promise you it equals to everything. I've served churches, and this isn't the case here, that all they ever wanted a pastor to do was someone who had good bedside manner. They were good at visiting people in hospitals and the elderly in homes. And let me just say this. There's no more sacred work that I've ever done as a pastor than visiting people in those vulnerable spaces. But let me also say, it is not one of my gifts. 
which is probably why it feels so sacred to me, because I feel so out of my element and I have to rely on God all the more. And I'm not always the best person to do it. Now, does that mean I don't think it's important? No. Just because something is important doesn't mean I should do it. And just because I don't do something doesn't mean I don't think it's important. I think it's super important that Finn learns to swim. I also know that I'm not the best person to teach him. I've tried. It turns out just telling him to get over it doesn't help. (laughs) Just do it. I don't understand why you want just, you know, like, doesn't work. That's my personality. Also why I don't have good bedside manner. And just because I've decided to let someone else teach him, do you think that suggests in some way that I don't think it's important? No. Last week, we talked about what it means to be all in, to be generous with all that we have. And we talked about how the early church had everything in common. Everyone made sacrifices to live in a generous community. Today, I want to consider all in from a different perspective. Being all in doesn't mean you do everything. It means that all of us should do something. That it takes all of us giving what we have, giving the gifts we bring to the table to be the body of Christ. I can't be multiple parts of the body. It just doesn't work that way. No one should do everything, but everyone should do something. You see this right at the start of the early church. So you can read about it in a similar situation in Acts chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, you can pull those out. We're going to look at Acts chapter 6, or the words will be on the screen as well. In Acts 6, the church is still young, but it's growing really fast. Everything is new and fresh. Up to this point, things were going pretty well. They're still in that sort of honeymoon stage. But it wasn't long ago that they were walking and learning from Jesus. I mean, it's very, very fresh. And everything is beautiful, but things wouldn't remain perfect. So look at this. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so this new church is growing very fast, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. You see, not not all was perfect. (laughs) And now if you remember chapter 2, we read this. This is Acts chapter 2. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone in need. It was this beautiful picture of what it meant to be the church. But by chapter 6, we have this problem. Here's how it started, but how it's going. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Chapter 2, how it, go, how it started. Chapter 6, how it's going. And it didn't take very long. That's what it means to be human. And it's a strange coincidence that this passage today uh, is about the unfair distribution of resources rooted in what? Ethnic and racial boundaries. The Jews who were born Hebrew versus the Jews who were raised Gentile. So all of them were Jewish by religious practice, but some were, you know, slightly different ethnic, national, racial identities. And one group was being treated differently than the other. So right here at the start of the church, division and unfair distribution of resources risks ruining the church. But see what the church does as an example of us. Verse 2. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together. Pause there. They gathered together to address the problem. Imagine that. There's a problem, let's address it. It's a novel idea, I know. 
Imagine how things in the church could be different when a problem arises and we just gather everyone together to kind of, kind of come to a solution. And, and, and to understand how they addressed it, you have to understand what's going on. People were being treated unfairly, so naturally they complained to the 12 apostles, the disciples, the apostles who spent time with Jesus, who were running the church, the people who were, they were learning from, they, they were their pastors, so to speak. They, they complained to the people in charge, and based on the context, they assumed that these apostles will personally fix their problem. Of course they will. They are in charge. They are the apostles. The only way they, uh, they can show me that they actually care about the problems is if they do it themselves personally. And I, I'll be honest with you, doing it yourself personally is a very profound thing. Uh, something JB mentioned to me more than once about actually showing up myself and not sending someone. It meant a lot to him. I get that. But look what they do here. Verse 2. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Does the fact that the apostles assigned other people to do it suggest that it wasn't important? I don't think so. Just because something is important doesn't mean they should do it. And just because they don't do it doesn't mean it's not important. They believed in the body of Christ and how everyone has a role to play. So they find people to lead in this area to ensure that inequity is fixed. And not just anyone. They they need people who are clearly being led by God's spirit, who are full of wisdom. Like they're looking for qualified individuals who can address this complex problem. So instead of fixing it themselves, they found people who could help, people who God wanted to use. And it worked. Verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group, which I think is the, the miracle in this story, honestly. I don't know. It's, I don't know how that happened, because how does a group ever fully pleased with any decision? But they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, Nicano, Timon, Penarus, Nic- Nicholas, and, and, and Ant- from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. We have a lot to do as a church. We have a lot to do. We've become a new church. We're moving into a new season. And I can't do it all. Um, Our associate pastor, Amanda, can't do it all. Christy, Delaney, Molly, Dan, we can't do it all. Our board can't do it all. No one person can do it all. We need people like Stephen, Philip, Nicholas. And yeah, I picked the names that were easy to say. (laughs) We need you. So look at me when I'm saying this, right? You are not here by accident. And you're not here by chance. I believe you're here because God has a plan for you, and you have something to offer that no one else can offer. We need you. And God has something for you to do in the world and in the church, and I certainly hope at our church, but somewhere God has a rule for you. And it might be as simple as sharing your presence, attending worship regularly. It might mean becoming a greeter, welcoming people to church. It might mean starting a small group. It might mean volunteering with our violence reduction work. It might be volunteering at Little Bottoms Free Store. It might mean coming early to make coffee. It might mean coming during the week to help with office work. It might mean leading the charge for anti-racism work. You can pick up a role or two. I don't know what God has for you, but I know you're not here by accident, and I don't expect you to do everything, but I am praying that you will do something. You see, 
Think about the issues in, App, in, in Acts 6. The problem was that there was not equal distribution of resources. Some people were being neglected. Widows of all people, very vulnerable population, especially in the ancient world, but still today. And they were being neglected. And that usually happens when there is an equal distribution of leadership. Don't you see? You don't fix the problem by perpetuating it. In order to build a more equitable community, we need more equitable leadership and distribution of roles. And I'm here to tell you that if you read any popular books on, on diversity in the church and the problem with diversity in the American church, it will tell you that it's not, it's because of a lack of an equitable distribution of power and leadership. So you might have a church that's diverse, led by an all-white board. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, you don't fix the problem of unequitable distribution of resources by perpetuating it by having an unequitable distribution of power and leadership. In other words, we need everyone to do their part. And, I, and what's interesting is, you know, they had a convert to Judaism included in that board, and maybe all of them should have been. We need everyone to do their part, and when that happens, we're more likely to meet everyone's needs more effectively, and when that happens, I believe good things happen. The apostles refused to try and take on everything. You see the same story with Moses, if you read the story of Moses. Um, Instead, they recruited, trained, unleashed leaders in the church, and they distributed the burden of leadership to better distribute the resources of their community, and look what happened, verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I mean, I'd like to see our church grow. I, I don't have any desire for us to become a mega church, so relax. I get it. Jeez. How much baggage there. But I do believe that God wants us to use this space to its full capacity to be faithful to what we've been given here. This is our building now. Not just ours. It's ours together with a denomination and 11 o'clock service, but we don't rent space here anymore. This is our space. This is our, this is like, this is our block that God has entrusted us with to do something with. I'd like to see us do as much as we can with it, making a difference in our city, providing healing and individuals in our neighborhoods to be faithful with our spot here on 5th, to offer a safe place for people who need what our community has to offer, and our community has something to offer that other churches don't. And other churches have stuff to offer that we certainly don't, and that's okay. There are people who need what we have, and that means we're going to have to grow. Now, you might be wondering what part that is, what part you have to play in it. There there are lots of ways to figure this out, and and we'll spend some more time on this in the coming weeks. But I I do want to introduce an idea to you as we we kind of think about how we respond to this this passage. The ideal situation is when you use your unique gifts lined up with God's call on your life and the needs of a local church. So it's, it's a Venn diagram, which... I feel like anytime we do a diagram or a chart, this is, so our parent church, one Sunday, our, our pastor was like, hey, I'm going to show you a lot of maps. And I don't remember if this is the story, Maria. You know, I'm going to show you a lot of maps. I know it's going to be boring, but we should just pretend like we're excited. So when a map comes up, you should go, woohoo! And it kind of stuck on, and they're doing it like 10 years later still. Um, I don't use maps like that, but I use a lot of charts. So when, when we show a chart um, or a diagram, we should, we should so... Yeah, 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 yeah. It's great. Woo! All right, so here, here's my Venn diagram. An opportunity, a need, lines up with your gifts and lines up with your calling. We're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks. But today I want to talk briefly about that first one, gifts. 
um, what we might call spiritual gifts. Talent, you can, I'm not going to get into the nuances, but a lot of ways to figure out what your gifts are. Here's one of the best ways to figure out what you have to offer. It's to live in a close-knit community that people know you and can speak into your life, and they can tell you, wow, you're so gifted in this way. That's the best way. It's just to be in close community with people. That's the best, and it's the most personal. But to help us get the conversation started, there are tools that can help. For example, our denomination has a spiritual gifts inventory, and it's not too weird. Okay, So relax, everyone. Um, It's an online form, even, that you can fill out, and and it'll kick out some typical gifts used in the church that might fit you well. All right. Is it a perfect form? No. Is it a fun place to start? I think so. Uh, You can access it by going to our website, cityviewcolumbus.org slash gifts. Now, for the cynics in the room, can I get an amen? Yeah, there's a few of you. No judgment. If you look at these and you're like, this never makes any sense. They never tell me anything about myself I don't already know. They always get it wrong. It's too simplistic. Let me just say, I believe you. I see you. And I get it. But for the sake of solidarity, I'm asking you to do it anyways. (laughs) There you go. See? I want you, even if you think it's wrong, I want you to talk about what you think is wrong, because even if it's wrong or off or not you, we're talking about it, and that's the ultimate goal. So I'm not asking you to do something I haven't done. I did it this week. It took me about 10 minutes. There's 80 questions, and it gave me some results. My top three, according to this assessment, were what they call wisdom, leadership, and administration. Here's what that means. Don't have a good bedside manner. That's what, that's what that, would, that means. <laughs> I just, you know, wisdom is the gift of translating life experience into spiritual truth and of seeing the application of scriptural truth in daily living. Not always helpful when someone's hurting. Leadership is a gift of orchestrating the gifts and resources of others to accomplish the work of God. And administration is basically the same thing where you can organize human and material resources for the work. I, I don't know if I'm gifted in all these all the time, but I will say that this is actually very accurate to how I'm spending my time these days. The entire merger process, for example, involved all of these gifts. And I do believe that gifts are something that God gives us for seasons that we're in, that God gives us the ability to use certain things and to live in a certain way, and that's why it's called a gift. So I was talking to this uh, to Amanda, our, our friendship ministry uh, pastor, and also to Molly, because I wanted to ensure that uh, both classes, our kids and our friendship class, were able to engage in this uh, church-wide uh, conversation. And Molly went and took the test, and she said I could share the results with you. I don't know if you know Molly, but she got um, compassion and healing. Now, you know Molly, that makes sense. Compassion, according to this assessment, is the gift of exceptional empathy with those in need that moves us to action. And healing is the gift of conducting God's healing powers into the lives of God's people. Both physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological healing are ways where healers manifest this gift. And for Molly... I found that to be very true. Now, when I read her gifts next to mine, I could respond in one of two ways. I could be jealous. I know for a fact that people want me to be, you know, a little less objective, a little less wisdom-rooted. Maybe don't say the obvious thing. People would love for me to be compassionate and better at helping people heal. If you don't believe me, you should ask my wife. Okay? I'm not always very empathetic. I'm sorry ahead of time. You hear what I'm saying? And 
And I'm, gonna, I'm working on that, okay? So this isn't a cop-out. I'm working on that. I can get better. But it doesn't mean I should be jealous that it comes so naturally or so supernaturally to Molly, however you want to look at it. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that there are people here who are good at this. That she has gifts and is in leadership with so, her gifts are so different from mine. She brings so much to the table. In fact, we were at a staff meeting this week and she said something to our admin and as she was leaving, he was like, oh, she's so sweet. I'm gonna tell you, no one's ever said that when I left the room. <laughs> oh, Joe's so sweet. <laughs> that just never happened. And you know what? I'm at a place where I'm okay with that, okay? We are different and that is okay because yes, I believe I have something to offer. And I'm here to tell you that you have something to offer too, and it's probably not the same thing as me. And if it is, we'll probably butt heads, but that's a whole other conversation. So I'm gonna encourage you to take the assessment. Uh, I'd love to see your results. If you're, if, you're, if you're interested in getting more involved in the church, this is a great next step. Um, take the assessment, email it to me. Or if you're already part of a team, email it to your team leader. Molly's gonna ask all of her volunteers to, uh, to take the assessment and share it with her so that she can better serve the members of her team. And other teams will probably do the same thing as we kind of talk about this. So I encourage you to do this, uh, that all of us do this. Um, I know that you might think that you don't need it and that's fine, but I'm gonna encourage you to do it anyways because if we all do it and we're all talking about it, the people who do need it will get around to doing it. Do, do you see the, why I'm, this makes sense? So do it. Our board, I'm gonna ask our board to do it and we'll talk about it. You can copy and paste the results or download and print them, but I'd love to see them if you're willing to share. Once again, our friendship class and city kids are gonna do something similar but different um, because everyone has something to offer, including our kids. And Molly's very passionate about that. She's talked to, with our kids already. They have a role in the church. They're not just here to be served, that they serve. And in fact, many of our older kids serve in profound ways um, in the nursery, helping make coffee, a variety of things. So it doesn't matter if you're in the friendship class, city kids, if you're old, young, attend 9, 30, 11, you aren't here by accident and you have a part to play. So I wanna help, uh, let us help each other find that role in the church, whether it's in the church or out of the church. I'm not gonna make you serve where God doesn't want you. But let's talk about each other's gifts. So go to cityviewcolumbus.org slash gifts and uh, we'll start the conversation. So with that, the band can come up for our closing song and I'm gonna pray. God, we give you thanks. God, help us to not be jealous of each other. Help us to have healthy expectations of each other. Help us to embrace what makes us unique. Help us to not use our uniqueness as an excuse to be mean. Help us to grow in all of our areas, but especially in the areas where you've gifted us and help us to trust others. Help us, Lord. Help us to be a beloved community where people who bring different things to the table are able to lovingly respect and lift up those gifts. Give you thanks for how you use each one of us and for those in the room who are still thinking through and wondering, like, what role do I have in the kingdom of God? What, what role do I have in my community or this church or in, in a nonprofit I'm a part of? How do, what is that, does that, God, bring clarity and wisdom, open the doors for them to be able to see that you have a plan for them and that you have good things in store. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.